one step is all it takes in your renaissance, Cubensis. Magic Mushroom Farm from Hidden Creek. Hidden Creek Magic Mushroom Farms are easier, faster, and far more productive than any of the mushroom growing kits on the market today. And best of all, success is guaranteed. Psy Energy, a natural path to a new experience from Hidden Creek. The magic mushroom people who are forever keeping your mind in mind. That was an ad for Hidden Creek Mushrooms from a 1980 edition of High Times magazine. Psy energy, baby. Yeah, do you feel convinced, Camille? Um, I, I'm very susceptible to advertising. Um, yeah. But I will say that was an especially convincing yeah. pitch, and I'm, I'm Consider sold. me influenced. I'll, I'll mail my, my address and some cash to the P.O. box and get, get things going. Um, welcome to Texas Overture, guys. Yeah, hi. Uh, hey. Good to be back. I'm Faith. I'm Camille. It's been a minute. We're today's, back in the studio. Yeah, today's going to be a fun, uh, beautiful journey. Yeah, a, a, a psychedelic. It's going to be a trip. Let's <laughs> say that. It's going to be a real trip. Uh, right. Today, we're going to examine the strange case of Dr. Stephen Pollock, a pioneering figure in the world of mycology who met an early death at the age of 33 under shadowy and divisive circumstances at his home on Springbrook Road in San Antonio. This is a story that involves magic mushrooms, the combustible social atmosphere of Texas in the late 70s, illegal drug operations, scrubbed records, and a man driven to drive his vision to a successful end no matter the means. At once a local doctor feel-good to junkies and politicians alike and a determined researcher desperate to break his findings into mainstream medicine, this duality ultimately led to the slaying of the S.A. Shroom King, Dr. Stephen Pollock. Um, <laughs> the fatal follies of Dr. Feelgood. Damn. So our subject for today, Stephen Hayden Pollock, was born in Los Angeles in 1947. He ended up going to Wisconsin to go to the Me- Medical College um, of Wisconsin. He graduated from there in 1975, and then he eventually went on to do pharmacology studies. He got a job at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. Yeah, and during this time, he became increasingly interested in mycology, um, the potential of mushrooms um, in in the medical field, and he kind of, as a pet project, independently began doing research. He was traveling to different locations all over the world, building relationships with other people in the field. Um, he published a few articles um, in various journals um, and began developing um, a method of growing psilocybin mushrooms. And so in 1977, he published a book called Magic Mushroom Cultivation, um, which was one of the first of its kind after the Terrence McKenna book. Um, I don't yeah. remember what that's called, but it was only like a year after yeah. that or something. And his, the things that he was writing about, I mean, they were, they were revelations for the mushroom community. He was writing about things that people had not heard of before, like using Purina dog chow and brown rice as growth substrates because they produced 
um, offspring that had incredibly high psilocybin contents. Yeah, um, and this and while the book kind of detailed like these different methods, only later did like uh, like chemical analysts kind of d- decide, wow, this guy like he he figured it out. Brown rice is the way to go. Yeah. Um, so that that was pretty pretty significant in the timeline of his life yeah Um, and it kind of grew his people definitely thought that he was strange but they knew that he was strange to an ends that was uh usable for them yeah they you know he he was like a kind of classic mad scientist Mm -hmm. if you will um in in the mushroom community find ourselves in the swampy paradise that is Tampa, Florida, at the second iteration of the International Mycological Conference. Right, and this is 1977, um, just right after Pollock's book came out, Magic Mushroom Cultivation. And he, well, you know, scholars and and novel novel enthusiasts are passing in in and out of the doors of the the convention center, Pollock is parked in the parking lot, operating out of his Winnebago, Walter White style. Yeah, sifting through mushrooms in the parking lot. People are sort of looking at him. Um, Who's this bearded freak? <laughs> They're used to a more covert operation than than what Pollock has going on. Um, but they were still, nonetheless, interested parties who wandered over to those double doors to see what was up yeah there were a lot of um famous mycologists at this conference gary linkoff gaston guzman um gary linkoff and pollock were both very interested in gaston guzman and when linkoff eventually approached pollock in the parking lot they both uh simultaneously decided that guzman's research he was presenting was less interesting than all of the possibilities surrounding them in Tampa at that particular moment. Yeah. And what a what a blessing that they did. Because their their mutual understanding and um you know uh in- instinct to kind of scavenge and, and survey the land uh led to a very um very special discovery. Right, and the culture of mycology and mushroom hunting in the late 70s was that of um, interest, curiosity, intense suspicion. A lot of people would go to farms um, without consent of the farmers after it had rained or something. Which is like, you should never trespass on rule like that's like a, a fundamental of life. Never enter a farmer's pasture without farmer's consent. That's true. I do feel like down here in Texas, things are different. We know what um, could happen. Yeah. <laughs> but Florida is a lawless land. Um, and, I mean, there were there were a lot of cases where people would wander onto a farmer's pasture and get beaten to death. Shot. Yeah. But there were also cases where the farmers would see it as a money-making opportunity and allow people to enter. They could buy a pass and mushroom hunt. And, um, you know, from then it was out of the farmer's hands. Um, manure is, um, it's like gold. Yeah, also to a some. Gross um, 
Yeah. So um, they use their their um, poll as mycologists attending town for the conference specifically to gain access yeah, to. They flash some badges. A um, cow and e- pasture. And even though they had, at least Pollock had the look of a, a red flag hippie, um, hippie stock uh, that kind of frightened the more um, territorial of, of farmers. They were granted admittance. Um, one version of the story apparently goes that they're walking through the field. They uh, Pollock accidentally drops his his doobie. <laughs> Bro. <laughs> oh, hell. <laughs> yeah. And, and it lands in the shadow of a beautiful mushroom with a a uh, caramel cap, a thin stem. Um, but I think the probably the more real version goes that he just looked down and he saw it. it and he identified the the kind of purple-hued gills, which is uh, usually indicative indicative of a high psilocybin content. Right. So you know, Linkoff, Pollock, these men were stoked. They pick the mushroom. Uh, I think he it says that he like slices it open lengthwise, um, puts it in a petri dish. Eventually, things start growing in the mycelium that are totally unheard of. Um, eventually, he eats it, and he has <laughs> a beautiful psychedelic journey. That um, he, I, I guess the idea is that it was like more intense than he had experienced or it was in some way much yeah. different or more vivid um he ultimately called this would refer to the strain as the philosopher's stone because of, to to emphasize the right. the discovery and I, I believe the um scientific name is psilocybe temp- tampensis tamponensis okay um like i have you know chicken scratch hand the right city that i tampa uh, <laughs> that's, damn, okay. So, psilocybe tamponensis was important to Pollock, not only because he's a mycologist and he had been searching for new um, species, but because his goal was to create a $2 million super lab to grow and research mushrooms in. And so, this new discovery of his and his ability to sort of selectively breed it and make it... Um, you know, available, the philosopher's stones, as he would call them. This could very well be his ticket to getting the lab that he wanted. Yeah, so so quickly kind of capitalizing on the momentum that he saw, the potential he saw in the, in the lavender gills of this Floridian mushroom, he uh, joined forces with a man named Michael Forbes, and they created... Um, the brand Hidden Creek, uh, the the very one that we read the advert from in High Times, um, and things are moving really fast at this point. They 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 brand the shroom as Cosmic Camote, uh, or the Philosopher's Stone. They put the ad in High Times, and very quickly, um, you know, it's distributed all over the world, and they become the largest mushroom distributor in the world. Right. I'm not familiar with High Times, um, aside from this, but I guess it's, like, you know, the number one stoner mag for... It, you mean it's... You guess it's extremely epic? And yeah. totally cool? 
Yeah, and I mean, yeah, through his his association with High Times, he, as you said, became the the largest home delivery service in the entire world. Um, I I looked through a couple old High Times, and it it, it was like a very fun magazine. It made me uh, really appreciate the magazine industry and all the work that went into providing people with wacky little <laughs> uh, snapshots and asides. There were there's some good interviews that there was like a you know, a glamorous Cheech and Chong cover mm-hmm. shoot. Um but they also had like interviews with like writers and Yeah. You, you know, it, it was it was like in there there were some highbrow um yeah uh, pieces. It had some beautiful art, some like nice Planet K style um yeah blue light you know yeah faith uh faith has talked about wanting to become a planet k artist um yeah i would love to do like large scale drawings of gnomes smoking pipes and stuff or like dragons and wizards um (laughs) stephen pollock uh presiding over his uh grow pickle rick uh uh uh, dapping each other up or something. <laughs> um, yeah, that would be awesome. We're, yeah, if anybody has a connect, um, Faith's really talented. Um, yeah, so truly, like in the span of like, like a couple, like a like a couple years, um, he th- he's quickly raking in like, like, God, what was it, how much was he making every month? It was like ten thousand. Ten dollars. It was something absurd. Wait, no, that's not it. Was true like at all. fifty. $50,000. Yeah, $10,000 was a different number. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote down. Let's, let's, um, uh, let's verify that, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was $50,000. Um, yeah, and so, you know, things are moving very quickly, and it's from the time of the discovery of the strain, uh, to it being, the ads being placed, um, in high times, and these are usually ads with, like, seductive, women um of course um yeah he uh hidden creek was quickly raking in about fifty thousand dollars a month um but it wasn't enough and uh pollock had a grow mindset a growth mindset that um yeah kept the momentum going and he had to i mean there were a lot of things that he had to do to to keep this research going um including just like in a normal medical setting, he had to uh, administer research that was academic so that he could later on down the line administer research that was like psychedelic, you know? Yeah, he was kind of, he had like a foot in two different worlds. He was, he was a hustler. So it's a good time to sort of contextualize what was going on in Pollock's practice at the time. Now, to work on introducing psychedelic administration in medical settings, Pollock kind of had to prove effects against an already documented problem. Um, and he decided to begin with what is constantly a very poorly defined thing, autism. So Paul Stamets claims Pollock administered these research experiments on autistic patients whose parents were sort of at wit's end, didn't know what to do, didn't know how to handle it. Um, And he also says that they had maybe not very sustainable, but positive results. Um, Yeah. 
I was just going to say, and given, and given like the, the ultimate history of Pollock's uh, medical practice, as we'll see, this is like a believable claim. He often um, did conducted experiments and provided procedures um, right. under the table. Yeah. Um, Michael Forbes, however, claims that this was sort of a fabricated claim as a means to get the DEA on board for further experimentation not necessarily against a documented problem, but just for the sense of general self-betterment. Not, you know, trying to cure an affliction, just trying to better yourself as you are. Yeah, and and, and throughout his uh, brief career, kind of being able to conduct his research and, and have the funding to develop um, psilocybin mushrooms um, within the realm of uh, like mainstream medicine was always a goal of Pollock's. Um, so this would, this would make sense. Yeah. And so in 1979, he applies for a patent, um, on tamponensis sclerotia as a psychotherapeutic medicine. Um, and he began traveling to South America often for research and ended up discovering three novel species in 1979, Psilocybe armandi, Psilocybe wassoniorum, and Psilocybe schultesi. Um, and during these times, his social standing was very um, controversial. People were sort of out to get him. Uh, he would leave, he would come back, his house would have been robbed. Um, yeah, I mean, he was exposing himself to like all kinds of people. They knew he was making a lot of cash. Right. Um, and so he was in a uniquely vulnerable position um so he i think eventually like got bars put on his window yeah but he he refused to buy a gun um as we see he preferred more natural methods like martial arts yeah um paul stamets as we've a person who we've mentioned um and who you might know from the netflix documentary fantastic fungi yeah he's kind of the mycologist he's the he's the darling of the of the mushroom community of the mushroom kingdom and, and he's he's interesting um but he had sort of a a relationship with pollock that was often contentious but he was going to teach him martial arts <laughs> around this time <laughs> uh which we thought was a fun a fun detail um sometimes you just have to defend your incredibly valuable property housing several rare species of mushrooms with the art of your own body yeah, you have to you have to protect the mycelial mass through um, not with weapons of mass destruction, but with um, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, try tr- tried and true uh, <laughs> uh, you, you know a- ancient uh, fighting practices. <laughs> so. All right, before we get any deeper into the uh, mycelial lore of Stephen Pollock, uh, we want to take a minute to uh, talk about uh, some of our own, some of our own experiences, some of our own experiments that we've been doing in preparation for this mm-hmm. episode. Um, personally, 
uh, for me, that pretty much just involves uh, macro dosing uh, 500 milligrams, sometimes sometimes a thousand milligrams of reishi mushroom, <laughs> <laughs> of reishi mushroom cacao powder uh, for vitality and uh, yeah, e- eagle eagle eye focus, <laughs> which um, is yeah, we have to mention is completely retail su- yeah, substance. I, it's not it's just like stuff that you buy at ATB. It's like it's like a box H-E. a box of like packets that I bought at HEB for like twenty three dollars um yeah. that I don't have. Um and this is all also contextualized uh dur- I, I bought this during a period of great anxiety and personal and personal strife and uh I, I, I convinced myself that Reishi mushroom would would change my life. And uh, I I feel that it might. Um, it's still my change. It's still <laughs> there's still time. Jury's Dr- out. I have also been doing that. I've been drinking like um, mixing like a mushroom powder with my coffee, um, and I've also been taking like lion's mane cap capsules. Um, and I feel like it generally has been feeling pretty good. I feel like when I take the little mushroom packet, I, I do focus better. Um, but I didn't feel like that today, and I, I drank one. But then I realized that it's not because the product isn't working. It's because Camille put a lava lamp in our studio. <laughs> I, I've i been working hard to spruce up the studio. Um, I really uh, wanted to kind of evoke a psychedelic vibe yeah. for the purpose of today's recording. Um, <laughs> it's working. And... Uh, I you know that includes putting a gorgeous lava lamp on our on our card table and uh, it's it's very distracting. Um, but we have big plans for the studio in general. Um, I I want it to look like kind of like a hospital waiting room <laughs> in a late '80s crime crime yeah. movie. Um, I want to have like a fake ficus and a rolodex and a green a green desk lamp. Yeah, I wanted to look like the movie set itself, like a craft services table with like beef jerky and Modelo micheladas. Well, that's pretty much how <laughs> it is. That's pretty yeah. much wh- how it's looking. But I recently obtained a Black and Decker coffee pot, which has kind of been a revelation. Um, it's sitting on top of the file cabinet in our studio. It looks beautiful. Yeah, I have a beige file cabinet. Um, that was really important for to me for some reason to have in the space with with all my files um and faith got me a miniature a gorgeous um you know like depression glass colored refrigerator that fits several beverages um so so things are things are coming together for us an experiment i wish i did was um i i didn't have the chance to like get a severe wound or gash um during the preparation process and I wanted to see if like putting a a slice of moldy bread on my on my open wound would like offer antibiotic um properties like 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 in the civil war yeah um I I didn't I didn't get to that I didn't didn't, no nothing nothing happened to me well we have time once we get the studio set up we can it can you know be a functional hospital um (laughs) which is actually you know can bring us back 
to our topic. You you went. <laughs> yeah, Stephen Pollock um, did have to kind of convert his DIY uh, business into more of a believable hospital space. Um, yeah, so he was running a pharmacy out of his house. Um, that's what he had to do. That, that's sort of the thing that he stooped to doing to uh, gain funds for this super lab. Um, he was writing prescriptions for quaaludes, you know. Uh, he had a lot of people who depended on him specifically to feed their addictions. Um, and a lot of those drugs, too, were sort of going out of fashion in the, the medical field. Um, but he would have people come, pay in cash. He would write them a script for quaaludes. He would, he would supply them. Um, you know, and things started to get very ambiguous here. Um, he would, there's a story that he, like, prescribed quaaludes to a woman who was passed out when she, you know, passed through the threshold of his... Had been brought in by a group of men. Yeah. Yeah. But he was also doing things like providing free health care for you know, low-income families and stuff. Um, Yeah. I don't know. There was a very mixed bag of of people and of uh, afflictions in his house. He had politicians, regular old drug users. um, Yeah, it was a really um, kind of like who's who of San Antonio. His his business partner, Forbes, uh, was quoted as saying that the office was indeed a who's who of San Antonio society. Drug use knows no socioeconomic boundaries, and so on a given day you would find scientists, government officials, and the most strung-out junkies all waiting in line for their turn. Right, and we read that he would bring in $10,000 a day. He was also using his house as a place to just perform surgeries. Part of his sort of like underground medical service um, was not just writing prescriptions, but actually performing physical work on people. People would come in with gunshots, um, and you know, people who didn't want to take their their injuries to a hospital because it would have like it would legal the, implications. Yeah, for yeah. Them. The hospital would have to call the police, or you know, there would be some sort of pressing charges involved. Um, These people would go to Pollock, and he he would play it cool. He wouldn't ask questions. He would fix right. he would fix them up. Um, and all, all during this, you know, he has this world world famous business. He's raking in all this money. Uh, he he's shipping things all over the world, and naturally that catches the eye of various organizations who have a problem with what he's doing. He's mm-hmm. being watched by the DEA. Um, he at the same time while he's running this practice and. Uh, providing these mushroom kits he also has a secret marijuana farm near the san antonio international airport and apparently the dea was like flying planes over kind of keeping tabs on everything yeah um i think the the factory was the hidden creek factory was by the airport um and then the mushroom farm was right behind twin sisters and twin sisters is like a diner yeah in, in central San Antonio. <laughs> yeah, he had a mushroom farm behind like a quirked up, a quirked up diner called Twin Sisters, where is you know where all the Alamo Heights ladies go and have their egg salad on 
Yeah, and there's all kinds of like Beatles memorabilia yeah. on the walls, which is just a funny, <laughs> a funny detail. Um, but he's also being monitored by like local, lo- like local law enforcement. Um, yeah, he, there were a couple of undercover cops who visited him, and he provi- uh, prescribed them Dexedrine. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, he began to sort of freak out. He's understanding that things are closing in on him. Obviously, the nature of his work is incredibly illegal. Um, his medical practice is in- illegal and ethically ambiguous, and um, people are starting to notice, definitely. And not only have they noticed, they've caught him in the act. They are ready to, you know, close down on him. Yeah, but he, but he's he's steadfast in his mission he's he's he keeps going he keeps writing scripts he uh because he's completely oriented around this like ultimate goal of like breaking through yeah beyond their um relevant hallucinogenic properties you know mushrooms have a very important role in our ecosystem of course you know people people have long been fearful of them due to their association with death and decay mushrooms functionally decompose they rot and return nutrients back into the soil you know this feels like a fitting point to talk about the events that led to the death of um, dr stephen pollock so, January 31st, 1981, it's another workday for Pollock. Things are pretty much going as they normally would. He's taking patients. Um, his secretary doesn't notice anything unusual. Eventually, his girlfriend Mitzi and him decide to have dinner together. And then she calls at 7. Yeah, she calls at 7. They talk. Normal relational chatter. Um when are you going to marry me? Baby, like, put a ring on it. Uh, Not unless I, we have a prenup, I love babe. you. He was like, babe. She's, she, on record, said that he was like, like, literally girls posting their L's, like, babe, we can't get married in, until you sign a prenup. Um, and that's basically their last conversation. Yeah, and then uh, at half past nine, um, Paul Stamets calls Pollock. They kind of, their friendship had, had grown distant. Um, because Stamets was kind of growing weary of Pollock's methods, the way that he was working and drawing attention to himself, because Pollock was still in the game, absolutely. He was nonstop working, taking patients. Um, and, I mean, the constant in and out of his house, you know, drew lots of attention to him. The police were already on his ass. Like, people knew what was going on. And Stamets didn't really want to be a part of that. Um but he comes across some information, a reference that Pollock might be able to use uh, to help him get the patent for psilocybe tamponensis. So Stamets gives him a call. Pollock is being kind of weird on the phone. He's like, yeah, we don't know if he's giving him the runaround to kind of like bust his balls or if there's like an el- escalating situation. Yeah, he's, he's like being interrupted by other calls. He seems kind of frantic. Um, and eventually... You know, after a bunch of back and forth, multiple calls, Pollock says, I have to go. There's a car outside. Some patients just pulled up. Um, and yeah, Stamets is the last person who 
heard heard from Pollock uh, yeah. officially. Um, on record, Mitzi is said to have called Pollock a few times after he hadn't been home yeah. to the point that she was expecting him. And growing concerned, she pulled up to her to his house. You know, no no doubt, um, y- you know, concerned. And as she approaches the house, she sees his body prostrate on the floor through the window. Yeah. Um, and initially, she thinks that he had knocked himself out trying to light um, a burner, a burner, which he had apparently done a few months prior. And, and of course, she's still. Yeah. This still concerns her so she like can't get into the house it's all bolted up she runs to a neighbor's house which we should mention um she wrote that his house was usually unlocked yeah that's that's key um so she runs to a neighbor's she gets some help they get into the house and quickly the reality of the situation starts to become very apparent yes um pollock has been shot and he's inside um yeah laying supine in a pool of blood his pockets are there's a laceration on his face his pockets are cut open his house is a ransacked yeah basically um and naturally she's hysterical so early 1981 dr stephen pollock is found dead um, and we just want to posthumously set the scene for you a little bit. I actually found his house in real life. I went to this little suburban home that Pollock was doing all of this out of. Um, and I mean, it's the sort of place where you imagine, especially in the eighties, you know, I would imagine that people sort of knew what, you know, what was going on with each other. Like, especially with the constant ins and outs that Pollock was having government officials lines out his door. Yeah. Right. And like, I know also in his experiments, he would bring in like, um, large piles of manure. People would ask him what he was doing and he would, uh, maybe like jokingly respond top secret government program just to get (laughs) them to stop asking questions, you know? Um, so I went to this house. It was, small big enough of course for for pollock for the things that he was doing um it looks pretty similar to it the way that it looked in 70s early 80s um and it's in a very tight neighborhood so the amount of people that knew what was going on here was likely very large when you consider the police presence um just the neighbors in general their concerns about what was going on on their street yeah it's no secret like what he was doing was shady and it was underground but it wasn't by any means a secret um and it was strange like everything seemed to point to pollock at that point um and i will say that when i went to the house i probably looked very strange and like shady (laughs) um driving through like the darkened streets it was nighttime i had a black and white photo from this article Um, We're getting a lot of the information from held up in front of me. My phone was dim. I'm I'm comparing it to every house I see. And eventually I find the one and we sit (laughs) in front of it. And there's like someone doing like late night yard work um, (laughs) as I like take pictures of their household. Um, The, 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 um, you know, next generational remains of mushroom 
mass that he had uh, planted, seeded into the earth, were getting chopped by yeah lawnmowers blades yeah I imagine and uh it was strange and it i i mean it was also because i knew it was like a place imbued with very strange history that seems incredibly monumental and it's it's weird that so few people no one i've ever talked to in san antonio knows about this and it seems like such a totally major thing that happened here huge um but i will say that when i exited the neighborhood on a storage unit pointing to the street there was um a little graffitied mushroom (laughs) and i thought it was so cute um and it felt like a very special like marker like it was like a fly fly agaric mushroom um pointing to pollock street uh like has that been there for 43 years no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just uh and you and you, you know i mean truly yeah i've never i never knew about this before and i've lived here most of my life you know and, and to to most people who pass by now it's just like an insignificant piece yeah. of graffiti but it to me it was everything <laughs> <laughs> it points to this kind of glamorous like subtropical noir that uh has materialized through the life of Stephen Pollock um yeah and the reason I wanted to go there and to tell you all about it was because it does sort of lend itself to just seeing what the situation was physically like as I said there was no way for him to keep all of this a secret like he was doing all of it in plain sight basically um well and 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 on such a large scale that it was like impossible to like like he was just like praying that like he could get like license before yeah. it caught up with him yeah. i imagine and um, in several different areas around san antonio too big enough where like the force field of pollock's influence covers a lot of different bases yeah um and so there are a lot of theories about what might have happened um in his death Mitzi actually his girlfriend at the time was immediately questioned because apparently (laughs) (laughs) this girl yes yes girlfriend um while the police were in his house she was like actually could I like could I just sneak in there real quick let me just let me sneak by uh I just need to get some of my utensils from his kitchen which Um, was bizarre your boyfriend gets shot dead yeah that's like an Amanda Knox style level of uh casual (laughs) (laughs) casual and logistical concern in the wake of a loved one's death yeah very strange of her um it's but um she she um generally is not looked at as a prime suspect but it is she's just looked at as like being a little bit weird just like a weird bitch um but (laughs) there's another there's a whole tapestry of other um suspects i mean you know this this makes sense pollock was playing in rings that were with fighters on a global scale he was fraternizing with people with different degrees of power and different degrees of what they were willing to do to get what they want within the bear county area um so you can imagine that the the range of suspects um is very vast and very hard to and that's what makes this case so intriguing and so um you know unknowable but 
there are some there are some common theories um one of the first suspects was a local pimp named Archie Lee Johnson who was known to cruise the streets of of Pollock's neighborhood in his Cadillac El Dorado it was pink it was pink <laughs> um and you know one of one of Pollock's secretaries is quoted as um remembering that Johnson owed Pollock a great debt and so that was cited as a possible motivation but then Pollock's business partner Forbes um said that you know a little bit before the murder of Pollock he came to him to him with an idea that he was going to have hire Johnson and pay him to take out a couple cops um and Forbes you know vehemently opposed this idea and allegedly the plan fell through and you know maybe Johnson would turned against Pollock and took the hit out on him. Another theory, uh, and it gets a little bit strange and starts to open up the conspiratorial mind, um, fingerprints were found on the scene um, that correlated to a trio of roommates who were frequent patients of Pollock's. Um, Virgil Lissy, Ernest Dietzman, and Jerry Baker, and a, and a fourth a fourth man, Arthur Lenz. Um, and it was confirmed that Lissy was out of town in Austin on the night of the murder, um, but through his confessions and his admissions about uh, the men that he cohabitated with, uh, he claimed that they had been bragging about killing Pollock um, for some time. Um, and, you know, he, he listed some other facts about them. They were infatuated with firearms. Um, one of them was a former Vietnam vet. And they had talked about robbing Pollock for a while. Um, and then after the act, we, we talked about killing him um, in great detail. Um, and there was a detective on the case. Um, and the Bear County District Attorney, Terry McDonald, um, according to the records, refused to prosecute them, even though there was an admission and evidence and it was pretty damning. Um, the author of kind of a kind of definitive um, account of the story of Pollock, Hamilton Morris, he filed an open records request with the Bear County DA's office, um, kind of trying to see why the case wasn't prosecuted. And when he did this, uh, they said that there were no files on Pollock, but that like there were possibly four records that have been destroyed. In this article, it was also uh, discovered that Terry McDonald wasn't actually, you know, when confronted, he said that he wasn't actually the uh, Bear County District Attorney at the time. So the refusal to prosecute this case wasn't on his hands at all. And when Morris tried to get to the bottom of who was the attorney at the time, he couldn't find the records. Um, and in the police records, the official police records, it says that Terry McDonald was the district attorney. So already we're starting to see some 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 inconsistencies here. Yeah, misaligned information. Um, there's also, you know, an idea, a conspiracy that Ross Perot had uh, a desire to 
for Pollock's head, uh, he was rumored to say that he wanted to destroy him, and he was an obvious um, uh, drug war vigilante. Um, but I, th- I think it, it w- there was no, it was untrue. Like nobody could find evidence that yeah. he actually said that. Um, but there are still other theories too. Yeah. So a lot of this started because. Um, now Hamilton Morris is like a vice guy and he's a nepo baby of course. Uh Errol Morris his father being the director of uh the Thin Blue Line. <laughs> um Bizarre. but so much of this started because um Hamilton Morris was given a tape. Uh he was given a tape by a psychology professor and gerbil aggression researcher Gary Davis and on the tape was a police officer, a Castle Hill, San Antonio police officer named Wayne Merchant talking to <laughs> someone who's described as the burglar. Um, and they're talking about this Pollock case and they're both sort of respectively lamenting that people have been accusing them of, of killing him. Um, and the burglar like lets Wayne Merchant, the police officer know um that you know people think that he did it too and they're talking they're talking about crime obviously you know a couple a couple people who were involved in like the seedy underbelly of san antonio at the time wayne merchant is clearly a crooked copper who's who's involved with these informants in a way that causes him to uh he he talks about like wasting guys you know yeah he's a Um, he's a dirty dog he's mobbed up and uh he talks about like you know i had a buddy that shot a bunch of people on broadway one night um (laughs) (laughs) stuff like that so yeah it connects them to the pollock crime and sleazy it's a sleazy story all around yeah and uh it this among many many other things makes you wonder was this an inside job you know like after in the aftermath of um Pollock's death his father who he was pretty much estranged from his father wasn't really privy to what Pollock was doing he comes down to San Antonio from Los Angeles he was a Los Angeles real estate developer um and he basically just like squats in Pollock's home and he's amazed he's he had no idea that you know his son was working at this magnitude um and because he was like so I don't know struck by it he tries to convince the cops to not destroy all of Pollock's work um, and eventually the cops decide to do it anyway, of course. Yeah. Um, and he had, I mean, they found like a really extraordinary mushroom lab in Pollock's backyard. It, I think it was dubbed like the biggest mushroom bust in history or something at that point. Yeah. He just had, I mean, obviously Pollock was known for discovering species. So he had like several rare species. He was selectively breeding a bunch of things. He had like spore prints and just like an, an insane wealth of knowledge and the DEA just burned it to the ground. Yeah, they they got rid of it completely and you know, it strange detail his father uh approached Pollock's business partner um and was like proposing that they like move move all of it to Haiti cuz he had like cr- criminal connections there that might <laughs> be able to like yeah harbor this like vast ar- array of like mushrooms so is it you know 
it's an interesting detail about Pollock's father. Um, yeah. And the world that he was living in. And shortly before Pollock's death, too, it was looking like he was about to be arrested, be prosecuted, right? Yeah. And then the charges were dropped. And then very shortly after the, after the charges were dropped, he's found dead. Very curious. Very curious. So when you, when you zoom out and look at all of these different things, particularly the fact that uh, these re- records were seemingly scrubbed and, and nobody, nobody was prosecuted... Also in Pollock's house after um, his death, you know, we mentioned that it had, it had been ransacked. And one of the things that whoever was involved did was they sort of sorted through the records and displayed them in the way that hid maybe more important patients. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard. So what conclusions can you draw from this? I mean, it, it seems it it's, seems clear that. Yeah officials of some kind wanted wanted him dead i mean everything that he had was so valuable and there's a dense governmental history that would lead you to believe that the possession of powerful psychedelics would benefit them greatly and that um a planet k coded (laughs) doctor uh with access to all of these that was looking to administer them in some sort of medicinal way for self-betterment was not doing exactly what maybe they wanted with these psychedelics. And also just the the timeline of how quickly he, you know, kind of gained this, like, prominence and, like, access to the global community and, like, yeah. uh, like how many people he was influencing and empowering to, like, experiment with the stuff on their own. I mean, the whole story that we're talking about takes place over, Clear. like, a three-year period. It's crazy. Yeah, so he quickly quickly rose to fame and then immediately fell from grace very quickly um and in a way that left no real room for speculation because everything was destroyed yeah paul paul stamets thinks the cops killed him yeah yeah there's a point early on in this article by hamilton morris where he approaches paul stamets at um a talk that he's giving that stamets is giving and he like tells him about the tape and paul stamets is like Oh, Stephen Pollock, he was murdered by the police. Um, and it's in the middle of other people being like, Paul Stamets, what mushroom should I eat if I want to have beautiful, luscious hair? And stuff like that. <laughs> and like, um, yeah. On a cold day on Tuesday, February 3rd, funeral services were held for Pollock um, and this introduces another character into the mix Um, his name was Sam Green who later went by Father Benedict Um, and we could honestly do an entire other episode on this and we probably will Um, uh, but he was kind of like a a shifty local like radio personality and real estate pitchman um, who kind of started this, like, orthodox monastery that later um, (laughs) got taken down for being, like, connected to, like, all all manner of pedophilic, Mm -hmm. um, you know, stuff like that. It was was not a good thing, but I guess, you know, Pollock, given his position in town as, like, kind of being 
no questions asked connected to everybody you know you can you can you know understand maybe why he would be buried um you know by at a or you can understand why funeral services would be held at a, a a monastery like that castle of the hills church um but that's a, that's as I've said a tale for another day. Um, if you're a local, you might you might have seen green dresses, groovy granny green, in some of his advertising. Um, mm. <laughs> but again, a tale for another day. Um, I just think it's interesting. Um, and when Pollock was buried, he was buried with a mushroom in each hand. Um, one was a on his left hand was a large p cubensa strain that he had found in oaxaca um and hidden creek had had sold this and and in his right hand it was a different p cubensa strain that he had discovered in plant at the plantersville renaissance festival in texas um which is kind of awesome i mean god what a what a fitting way for the man to <laughs> to be buried yeah with with the decomposers of um his own finding um yeah a band called the supernatural family band played at his his funeral the honky tonk band right. uh, it's you know tr- truly cinematic um and there's so many threads it's hard to it's hard to go in depth with all of them um yeah i visited his grave um I was like I was like on the way to something and didn't have a lot of time. And I was like, I'll just make a quick stop. Um so I went to it's called uh I think Mission City Burial. Um Mission City Cemetery. Yeah. Think, yeah. And we stopped there. Um me and Zoid, who you all met at the Orb episode. Give um, it up for Zoid. <laughs> And he was very pragmatic about the approach. He went to the office to ask where Pollock was was buried. Um, I found the coordinates on the website, so I just decided, or the website being his Wikipedia page. Um, <laughs> uh, so I just decided to like try my best to wander through all of the very closely placed together graves to um, find him. And it's a very large cemetery. It was in like the back right corner, um, and I yeah I mean I I found it. It were there any was there any fungal matter sprouting <laughs> around the grounds? No, and it wasn't even really. Um, let me pull up my picture. It, but it wasn't like there was nothing on his grave site to imply that he lived. You know the life that he did. Um, um, it just said Dr. Stephen Hayden Pollock in God's care. Um, don't people like, do you know how like people call Blaze Foley the duct tape messiah and they like leave duct tape right. on his grave? You sh- we should go to Stephen Pollock's grave and like spread spores or something <laughs> and like create like a beautiful mycelial like yeah. bouquet or something. Well, maybe... Uh, I don't. I guess I don't know how mushrooms work, but because, well, no, never mind. I was gonna say because he was buried with mushrooms, maybe there's a beautiful. Um, well, I'm sure. I mean, everywhere, silently, yeah, underfoot as we tread this earth, as we move through Bear County, partially thanks to Pollock, there are a dense network. There's a dense network of mycelial threads just um, yeah. dominating. You know, yeah. things that we 
that our eyes can't even see the mushrooms that sprout are just like the reproductive right organs you know um but i think we i think we should um you know barter with the with the mission groundskeeper give them give them something that makes a deal uh to neglect his duties worthwhile so he so we can so we see can, what sprouts so we can see what sprouts so we can pay homage to pollock yeah i think it's what i, I didn't want. go there um cool so there's a lot that we could say about his death and about the conspiracy honestly given the given the way that the evidence was destroyed the way that things played out i feel like certain in my mind of course that you know the government the dea had something to do with it they knew something leading up to it um what that is it's hard to say uh and i don't really know i i I feel like a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are similarly minded that they they might think you know it seems obvious um in the aftermath of his death and the way that things were sort of misrepresented um the way that things were just totally destroyed um that you know there's much more than meets the eye um and the fact that no one was ever prosecuted despite all of this different evidence in several different directions goons who were offering themselves yeah i mean it's it's incredibly strange and maybe they were hired hands and you know you know but yeah so i get in certain incentive who knows right i i feel like it's better to just sort of present all of this information and just say you know this is obviously symptomatic of a much larger thing and uh you can sort of draw your own conclusions we certainly have um but i do think it's important to sort of contextualize what pollock was doing the idea of psychedelics in a medicinal context um Mm -hmm. and maybe some of our feelings about it right Um, so let me see it there's a specific quote that i wanted to read um So, yeah, there was a point in, and we should also note that there is very little out there about Pollock. And I I think that's by nature of so much evidence being destroyed. It's it's sort of a cagey story. Um, The Hamilton Morris article is really all there is. It's the most definitive thing that's been written about Pollock. Um, And so there's a quote that he has in his article that says, those hoping to introduce psychedelics into the pharmacopoeia of allopathic medicine, and there have been several, have always encountered a problem. They simply don't fit into a medical paradigm where the betterment of already well people is not considered a value, uh, a valid pursuit, right? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what we talked about with Pollock experimenting on those with autism, is that he had to provide some sort of evidence against an already documented case in order to can uh you know conduct these experiments on people who maybe didn't have any sort of uh neurological or physical problems they just wanted to take some sort of psychotherapeutic approach to better themselves as people um and my question maybe like a little bit of pushback against this quote from the morris article is is it you know the medical paradigm against treating already well people or is it the long-standing experimental traditions that prove the great harm psychedelics can cause in clinician-guided settings 
or you know government involvement in the administering of psychedelics um and would enough american citizens actually trust a sanctioned approach to psychedelics given the history of governmental psycho psychedelic programs um and you know do american citizens actually care about any of that enough or know about it enough and swaths large enough to influence an acceptance of psychedelic medical practice um is it maybe just reduced to the idea that drugs are generally bad <laughs> um, yeah i don't know I, I i think it's interesting and there are a lot of questions that can be drawn um i messaged my good friend abby who works in a hospital and i kind of asked her just like what is the attitude about this now like do you know anything about it have you experienced anyone trying to push for this in the setting that you're working in um and she sent me an article from the harvard divinity bulletin um and sort of said that she's skeptical of use in psychedelics because she doesn't think that uh the clinicians that would be administering these sorts of things are really ready to recognize the actual problems with it or like yeah. what what it means to have a, a bad trip or something like that so the article she sent me is by a person named Rachel Peterson, and it's basically about how she was a part of an experimental study where she was undergoing psychedelic treatment and how she had effectively a bad trip. Um, but she also talks about how we need to move away from the language of good or bad trips, and we need to move towards a framework that looks, as it, looks at it as something more phenomenological. We need to explain um, what happened rather than trying to explain the value of what happened. Um, and I found this really interesting because I think that, you know, when we're talking about Stephen Pollock and the things that he wanted to do, there's sort of like a teleological approach to psychedelics where we're thinking about it because the idea is that you will have some sort of psychedelic experience and you'll feel totally chilled out and connected and it'll make you a better person in some way. But what does that mean when we take the the end all of this experience as something that was sort of maybe like you know you're being put in a divine mindset and you're being connected to things what does that mean when the things that you're being connected to end up being very bad um, yeah it, it, and, and in that case like and, it, and this is posed in the article like it, in, instead of framing it like well if you didn't have a good trip then that means it wasn't successful like it's like a user error yeah like like having a having a quote bad trip is like still like you, you should be examining that like phenomenologically and like y you know it, evaluating like well what what were what was experienced you know what how how did that impact the you in like a way that like it is like severed from like valence of like good or bad yeah and she mentions um Husserl in this article too and something that Husserl writes about is that representations like hallucinations um are sort of characterized as being a representation of an intentional object um and that you see all of that through a framework that's made under an existential assumption so Again, it's like it kind of comes back to user error. Um, and then uh, uh, something that Merleau-Ponty wrote, too, is all hallucination bears initially on one's own body. So they're writing about these things, not about um, psychedelics necessarily, but 
about hallucinations and the phenomenology of them and how you know they they come from the body first right um and so that's sort of the idea is that you know if you're doing this sort of thing in a clinician guided setting and you have a so-called bad trip then it's maybe a problem with the setting itself or you weren't in the right mind mindset but really it's like it's the experience altogether and you can't there's no way to actually manipulate that into being good um yeah but if we're thinking about it from like a teleological perspective then if the trip is bad then we should be able to reckon with that in a way that makes some sort of sense from the badness and that's what the article talks about is just like maybe you know trying to thin the veil between our world and whatever we're accessing when we take psychedelics or use them as some sort of uh medicinal property then we should be willing to accept that sometimes getting closer to that sort of thing will not make us feel good um and that's that's something that's been accepted but oftentimes the way that that is accepted is you know in underground therapeutic settings where they are showing uh patients like videos of war and pornography and stuff like that to try to induce a horrible trip um for some sort of like cathartic reason to get all of that like just purge the badness from your soul um and what does that do what what are you supposed to come away with you know i don't know yeah yeah like maybe suffering doesn't necessarily you know it's not for an ultimate like end of good like yeah it's not like virtuous to suffer by nature um it's just something that you kind of do sometimes (laughs) (laughs) i don't know but she talked she talked too about uh like the push for this now um and the language that surrounds psychedelics and how they used to be called like hallucinogens you know inducing hallucinations or psychotomimetic uh stimulating a a state of psychosis and now they're being called um you know just like psychedelics or like invoking the psyche or entheogens generating some sort of religious or godlike state in you um and there's of course like a very dense context where all of that comes from yeah like um entheogens that's like the that's what was like in like the cave of like the oracle of apollo delphi right yeah like um things that you know there's a there's a dense history of like you know psychedelics inducing like godly or religious states um yeah there's a whole sect of people um referencing specifically uh the sacred mushroom of the cross by allegro yeah um he talks about like the plain crawl chapel and the fresco there and there are different uh which is like the garden of eden presented or like adam and eve and then depicted in the middle is like a tree with like what appears to be like mushrooms like yeah sprouting knowledge and good and evil uh there are several depictions of that throughout art history where mycologists maybe of the more you know hippie hippie type uh interested more in in maybe the the plain water psychedelic notions of things and not the research have have suggested that perhaps what's being presented to us is a large uh mushroom or or something you know like that uh 
Christianity has been founded on ancient fertility cults and yeah that uh, that Jesus is a is maybe like not a historical figure but a but hallucination <laughs> of early Christians who um Jesus is a mushroom Jesus is a mushroom and uh they consumed mushrooms his, his and flesh access. and body which is just you know you know, mycelial mass or yeah. something <laughs> um and there's like you know and and they he talks about like um uh, what's that that specific um toadstool called uh fly agaric the red and white one mm-hmm. little cartoon a- mushroom a man- amansis or something mm-hmm. um and there's like I- in this in this realm there's also theories about like santa claus being <laughs> like a like a siberian shaman and how his like you know traditional red and white outfit mimics this this mush this like psychedelic toadstool and um yeah it, it, there's there's like all sorts of threads that connect back um that that kind of relates to these like f- fertility cults um yeah it's just an it's an interesting like area of study to me because it's trying to manipulate a situation where you can kind of control yourself enough to you're, you're like giving yourself a sense of control that puts you in a state to completely surrender. And it's like sort of a contrived thing that, um, I don't know the, he talks about like the, you know, the betterment of people who are already well. And that's just interesting to me because it's so totally possible that people who are already well don't need this, like, you know, getting closer to something might like actually cause a mental breakdown yeah. or like a complete dissolving of like right. being able to like exist on like a a reality that feels functional yeah she mentioned um like sartre too and uh i think 1935 taking mescaline taking mescaline and seeing the crabs um which when i was young i read nausea and the part about him seeing the crabs on the beach really stuck with me um apparently i didn't i, I knew that but i didn't know that he had to consult lacan afterwards i know to do some psychoanalysis on him um and then aldous huxley and you know the doors of perception heaven and hell and stuff masculine hallucinations have led to great anxiety and anger and confusion and like breakthroughs but it's like okay breaking through to what and what what are you do we know what we're dealing <laughs> with here? yeah 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 it's like something that's I mean, literally, the mycelial mass is much larger than us, and its effects are things that we can't really comprehend yet. So to to put those into a medicinal setting or into a setting where everything is so um, delicate is hard to imagine. But then at the same time, the pharmaceutical industry in general is like... I've had... God. I've known so many people who have... Uh, like destroyed their lives or, or had horrible reactions to like birth control or like Lexapro or something like that, you know? Um, yeah. When it, when it, when it, it does become within this like common, like, you know, FDA approved like medicinal realm, like you also have to consider that like the bottom line isn't like your, your well being necessarily or like right. any like spiritual, like, reconciliation it's like the the like purchase and like um sale of of the drug yeah and i mean those drugs are 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 meant to make you you know a more productive member of society which i guess in pollock's view 
psilocybin mushrooms maybe would too. It's just that like, you know, you're not, when you start like Lexapro or something, you're probably not reminiscing on like kaleidoscopic visions of (laughs) the trees. Um, or like the web of love that <laughs> I don't know. No, it's true. It's, it's like literally a different animal. Yeah, definitely. Um, so as we kind of wrap up, I th- I just want to say that y- you know the article we were just talking about discusses having sort of a value neutral assessment to mystical experiences, right? Um, which is something that I think in general is very relevant to all of the things that we examine on the podcast um a lot of the subjects we focus on as we've discussed in the past contain a great deal of ambiguity um obviously Forrest Bess um the woman who fell in love with the orb um and all of these things and I think in the case of Pollock too and the the topic of hallucinogens there's a vagueness between realms of good and evil of sanity and insanity of the divine and delusion and it's interesting to examine these things because we often encounter these spaces as we go through life if on smaller scales but also as we choose how to approach psychedelics ourselves um and um kind of interact with like these other otherworldly um kind of ideas uh you know in psychedelics they have an equal history with violence as they do with sort of like hippy dippy harmony um the maya who in the archaeological record have mushroom stones and allusions to mushrooms um mushroom use during human sacrifices and several codices um and this violence is also you know cult- culturally relative and there's an ambiguity there you can't really say if it's good or bad um and pollock you know sort of had this value neutral attitude towards the law he is an, a morally ambiguous character, but I think just like allowing kind of his story to exist like phenomenologically and like just like evaluating like just like the arc of his his life and his career is still value you know interesting yeah um yeah I think learning about his story was very interesting to me because as we talked about earlier it seems like such a huge thing that happened i mean like right under our noses obviously we weren't around for it as it was happening but it's just strange that it's not a more codified part of san antonio history because i mean everything that he did was incredibly prescient like he was fighting for things that people are still fighting for today people are still pushing back against today um and i don't know like uh, the things that he was researching too like using brown rice as a growth substrate i was talking to someone about all of this and he told me that he goes on (laughs) a subreddit called like uncle r slash uncle ben's or something which is where people talk about growing mushrooms and uncle brett uncle ben's brown rice um it's just funny like i I, yeah it's strange to me that no one knows about this um when i was at central market earlier today (laughs) earlier today i was buying the like mushroom coffee packets and i went to our central market has like a beautiful mushroom cave where they grow mushrooms themselves um yeah oh it's gorgeous yeah it's so strange and there was there was like a a, it's it's uh 
the legendary Taste of Texas week at Central Market HEB, <laughs> which means that a bunch of farms from around the state have sent people to represent them and like cook their food on site, basically. And so there was this like cute young girl cooking mushrooms, and I approached her. I was like, okay, I want to talk to her about mushrooms. And I, I approached her, and I was like, so, you're cooking mushrooms? <laughs> and she was like, yeah. And <laughs> yes, girl. I was, I was like, oh, that's cool. I've I've uh, actually been reading a lot about mushrooms recently. God, faith, <laughs> Jesus Christ. And I asked her if she knew who Stephen Pollock was, because um, she's she was like from the area, um, and she was like, I don't know, it sounds familiar. And I was like, well, did you, he was killed by the police, and like immediately started talking about. And his she's murder. like walkie-talkie. She's like, like at work, trying <laughs> like, uh, there's a girl dressed in black, like uh, <laughs> saying all these harsh things. Yeah, <laughs> as, I, as I'm trying to paddle. Yeah. Uh, um, no, that's funny. But she, I, she sounded interesting. It was just like she was also at work. Um, <laughs> but I was just like trying to put feelers out of you know someone who clearly knows a lot about mushroom cultivation yeah. works in the the industry of of uh cultivation i was like just trying to see if they knew that yeah. it had such a local history and it was interesting to me that um this is not like a story and i think it's because like it's it is something for the city maybe that it feels shameful because it's like you know stories revolving around drugs are kind of sorted and um like morally ambiguous mm -hmm. and there's cover-ups right and, and it makes the police look very bad the way that like wayne merchant from castle hills pd was talking um the way that maybe the dea the implications about the way that they acted towards pollock yeah um and where those records went yeah um no it's understandable why this wouldn't be there there wouldn't be like a bronze statue like in <laughs> front of like the, the alamo or something right or like a kind Our of like fallen a, soldiers <laughs> a mushroom topiary you know framing the banisters at the river walk um yeah i also was trying to like gauge like knowledge of pollock um i like maybe like a year or so ago maybe longer had kind of spoken to a representative from the central texas mycological society for like a work thing he was kind of like a like a really nice like a really nice guy very into mycology um and his name is sam the fungi um and he does like educational outreach and also does like mushroom walks between like san antonio and austin and i went on one actually at the almost basin uh where whitley streber wow i know it's crazy how <laughs> these all, all things all of these things connect um and he was like showing us like all these different mushrooms that were gl growing in plain sight um accessing a mycelial mass underneath the underneath the kind of dirty soil that influence you know who knows maybe like somehow affecting all of the other events that went on there with willie streber who knows but um he, he was showing us all of these different mushrooms and he's like yeah i wouldn't eat any of these um this is like a flood plain like you're, you're gonna get poisoned <laughs> which was funny but i but i reached out to him and asked him if he knew about stephen pollock and he had heard of him and was like he said he was actually like a reason why he got super into mycology oh, wow. cool. um but didn't have a lot else to say other than like yeah he you know felt that the you, you know his like lawless uh f you know pharmacology business like maybe right. this is downfall um because there, there is there isn't a lot of um 
there aren't a lot of resources on him and he knew and then i reached out to another woman that was involved in in the organization angel and she hadn't heard of him um but was like really interested to to learn more um we tried to get connected to some some old heads who might have been around um around them but that that was a little bit unsuccessful yeah but you know i asked i asked the the older woman who's teaching me to meditate um (laughs) yeah maybe maybe i'm trying to change my life and maybe after reading the harvard article i am now terrified of meditating because i (laughs) now see it as a not a not a not an exclusively positive thing but something that could the veil between worlds very thick yeah (laughs) i need to keep i need to thicken thicken the membrane between my worlds actually and that'll actually uh, cure my anxiety uh in addition to the 10,000 milligrams of reishi that i'm consuming (laughs) um and i asked her about it and she's like in her 70s um and she was like teaching tm mm-hmm. in san antonio around then she said she had heard the name but like didn't really know i mean who knows when people when people ask me if i know someone i'm like yeah that sounds familiar you know who, <laughs> who's to say who's to say but um yeah there is there there is such um you know little public acknowledgement right. even amongst people who you think would know yeah yeah definitely. um do you have any other thoughts? Um, I guess not. I I think that this has made me think more about like just the place of all of this in people's lives, and like I don't know, like the self care industry and the way that yeah. drugs, aside from like pharmaceutical drugs, have sort of made their way into that, um, and how the idea of like addiction in some senses have been replaced with like therapy but not in a way that's necessarily good like people are addicted to being therapized whether it be yeah. like, from some sort of physical substance and that's like seen as i don't know it's like accepted in some ways like uh and it, it all feels like a ploy for you know like consumerism and just encouraging people to buy more things because if they buy more things then they'll feel better about themselves or or, or just back to the question of like what does it mean for something like looking at things through the the lens of like well does it work or doesn't it work and like evaluating like therapy and like pharmaceuticals to like a certain end while also not acknowledging the wide range of like other impacts that it might have and like um how it should maybe that shouldn't necessarily be uh you know you know the the package be all end all of like right. solution to like your your problems or lack thereof or something yeah definitely um, yeah um, or it, it definitely makes me think twice about like <laughs> in endeavoring um you know you crossing any of these lines um yeah having having um psychedelic experiences yeah and a lot of this information that we've just laid out to you all is not anything that we can obviously like solve or make any commentary on other than just us telling you you know that this happened and 
Yeah. Um, it's like a small thing that happened amongst a larger, uh, like rapidly growing social um, context surrounding drugs and the way that they're treated and the way that they're utilized in medical contexts and stuff like that. It's, it's just something that you kind of have to take in at, at face value and understand that like, even at face value, there are so many strange threads and um, incredibly like devious things that go on in plain sight in the medical community, the pharmacological community. It's just really strange. It's all just so strange. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just, but also just like, God, what a story. Not to be like uh, the magic of the movies or something, but like, <laughs> the, the story of Stephen Pollock is so fascinating because yeah. it's like, it, you, you don't, at least I, I don't often hear, you, you know, ta tales like that told, uh, you, you know, in San Antonio. I mean, yeah, and it all happened so fast. It happened so fast, and that's probably why he was taken down in the end. Right. Um, yeah, this is, it's, it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I think that's, uh, I think it's about time. It. Yeah. Um, I think you're right. Um, thank you all for joining this, us on this, um, beautiful trip. <laughs> we hope that you experienced a phenomenological administering of uh, the psychedelic story and I hope that you I don't know <laughs> listen to some psych rock um, yeah listen to Plantasia yeah um, maybe maybe like eat, eat some like shiitake like ravioli or something tonight yeah um, that sounds nice make a risotto <laughs> Um, wa wander, um, you know, the suburban streets, look, look behind dumpsters at your local gas station and see what kind of mycelium, what kind of mushrooms you encounter, see how they make you feel. Might just save your life. Or they, they might be the, th the final thing that <laughs> destroys you. Just destroys <laughs> you. Uh, okay, well, yep. yeah, this has been another beautiful episode of Texas Overture. Yeah, let us know. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you've had, you know, any experiences that yeah. relate. Um, I'm Camille. I'm Faith. Thanks for listening, folks. See you all soon. Bye. Bye. So much of it, when I saw